Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome or welcome back to Season 3 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. The Logical Christian Podcast is not here to tell you what to think. It's an exercise in how to think. Rather than just accept what we're being told with regard to current events, politics, science, religion, and everything else, we're going to stop the spin, ask questions, dive deep, and look at the world logically. And since logic is a gift from God, most importantly, we're going to look at it all as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. The old saying goes, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And sure, that's likely true in certain situations, but it seems like we're not viewing that statement as a situational philosophy. We seem to be viewing that as an either-or trade-off, as in we're choosing social interaction and pure ignorance, because the only other option is the opposite, an intelligent hermit. People, this isn't an either-or proposition. We can actually do both. What you know is actually pretty important, to be honest. And no, I'm not saying that because I'm a friendless, basement-dwelling hermit. I mean, I am, but I'm not saying that because of that. I really think that we should know things. But maybe not. I don't know. What do I know? On today's episode, first we're going to suspect absolutely everyone, just to be on the safe side. Then we're going to use words good. Goodly. Good. And finally, after trying everything else, we'll break down and see what the Bible knows. So, grab a mirror and start practicing that squinty-eyed look of distrust. Then grab a notebook and a pen. Oh, you're gonna need it. And finally, prepare to be indoctrinated. Because, hey, if you know, you know. Here we go. In 1987, the former member of Wham!, now fresh solo artist, oh, nay, artiste, singer, shall we say professional lyricist, George Michael, intoned these haunting, thought-provoking, dare I say soul-piercing, and yes, I do, I dare, soul-piercing lyrics, quote, because I gotta have faith. I gotta have faith, because I gotta have faith, a faith, a faith. I gotta have faith, a faith, a faith. Baby, no, sorry, ignore that last bit. Although this song is likely sung in many of the seeker-sensitive churches of today because they don't really care what the song is about as long as there appears to be a Jesus word in there somewhere, this song is actually not about belief in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. No, no, no. This song is about having the courage to leave your lover who has proven to be untrustworthy, even though, quote, not everybody has got a body like you. Now, I'm sure with a little minor tweaking, that song could be rearranged into a Christian song for someone like Jesus Culture or Hillsong or one of the many, many Christian artists that really don't care about what they purport to believe as long as the money keeps rolling in. So the question has to be asked, what was George placing his faith in? as he wrenched free from the seductive body of what could have been a man or a woman. He was undecided at that point in his life. Well, I'm not sure, as he said, while he was still alive, that although he was brought up in a Protestant home, he really didn't have much interest in religion. But he did believe that good and evil existed in the world. So what would he place his faith in? I guess maybe a universal good, or maybe his own willpower? Maybe he was just placing his faith in faith itself. Now, faith is an interesting thing. The technical definition is a, quote, firm belief in the integrity, ability, or character of a person or thing. Putting the idea of religious faith aside for just a bit, and you'd likely suspect we'll come back to that, trust, faith, trust can take months, years, or longer to build and can be lost in an instant. 
maybe lost for a long time, maybe lost forever. Now, according to wikihow.com, an article by a marriage and family therapist and professional certified coach, there's a way we can build trust. And yes, I know I'm using trust and faith synonymously here. He says that a person trusts another person when they feel they can be vulnerable and everything will be all right. Trust takes commitment. It takes effort. If you want to be trusted, you have to be trustworthy. So what does he say we need to do? Well, first, be reliable. Do what you say. It doesn't matter if it's big or small. If you say you're going to do it, do it. Everyone understands the occasional failure, but when these become more of a of a, of a pattern, they're not occasional anymore, well, then trust starts to fail. This means we need to be consistent in our lives and consistent in honoring our promises. If you can't keep a promise, a face-to-face explanation, maybe an agreement on how you can make it up might be necessary. Remember, a promise is a promise regardless of the size. Sound a little Dr. Susie there, but it's true. Personally, I made it a policy of mine to only make promises I knew, God willing, I could keep. Second, be honest. He says to tell the truth as much as you can. I think we all know that there is no such thing as a white lie, right? We've all probably heard that. So what if telling the truth hurts someone's feelings? Okay, well, I mean, look, I'd like to say that we don't lie, but I think we need to let our conscience be our guide on that. To me, if telling the truth about something would hurt someone and it served no purpose, I'd say you need to work your way around it. But the point this author makes is that the most important time to tell the truth is when you would benefit by lying. This is a good place to start, at least. He goes on further to say that if you do lie, admit it, confess it face-to-face, explain your reasoning, however poor it might be, and be sincere about your apology. Of course, if someone has to tell you to be sincere when apologizing, I mean, how sincere are you really? But, I mean, it kind of had to be said. And are you sorry because you got caught? Or are you sorry because you're truly sorry? Probably best not to lie. Third, be open. There are lies of commission and lies of omission. Being vague and aloof are options, but they aren't always good options. If you want someone to trust you, it's probably best if you don't act guilty by being vague in your answers or your story. As long as the person you're speaking with is someone you feel that you can trust, reciprocate by being open about yourself. If there are things that you just don't want to talk about, be open about saying so. You don't have to tell anyone everything, but being honest about not wanting to speak about something right now, well, that goes a long way too. And fourth, show your integrity. If someone tells you a secret, it's a secret. Don't tell anyone else. You don't have the right to do that. Of course, the caveat would be if keeping that secret could cause harm to that person or others, then you must tell someone, but you probably already know that. Look, be loyal. You'll never gain trust if you're a flaky friend, if you disappear every time things get hard or a helping hand is needed. Along with that, manage your emotions. A person who can't maintain control of their emotions is someone that at least presents as potentially untrustworthy. Of course, abusive behavior or language is a non-starter, but that should go without saying. If you need to share your feelings, if you need to tell someone no to something, it's best to speak confidently and assertively, but not aggressively or abusively. And the final point he makes is to is to alter your behavior when appropriate. What I've tried to do and what I've recommended others do is that if someone criticizes or reprimands you in a way that seems unkind or unfair, be, be it maybe family or friend or employer, whatever, when you calm down, because you're probably going to be a little worked up at that point, when you calm down, ensure you have your mind straight, at least evaluate what that individual said. Peel back the layers of the words that were used to see if there's anything inside of it that you need to take seriously. 
quite often, by the time someone gets to the point of getting on to you for something, that something has been building for a while, and maybe there's something you need to change, which could potentially have positive effects that are farther reaching than only that one strained relationship. Now, if you've broken trust, these same steps, more or less, are needed in order to rebuild trust, along with some very heartfelt apologizing, the willingness to sit and listen to the other person unload their hurt feelings on you. Just sit there and be quiet. You're the one that brought this on, after all. You want to empathize with them. Strive to understand how you broke that trust and take full responsibility. Don't blame shift. Don't argue. Don't make excuses. And then, assuming you get the opportunity... Start working on the points that I just went over and work hard. So why do I bring this up? No, no reason. Why do you ask? Look, I have my reasons. Okay, get off my back. Okay, fine. Can you keep a secret? So found on Fortune via finance.yahoo.com. Headline, disillusioned Americans are losing faith in almost every profession. Now, I'm no expert, but that doesn't sound ideal if I were to say something. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in this article. We'll actually get to the study and look at some data. But what we're finding is that this pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns, which we're now finding out exactly what a lot of us already knew, they, they weren't warranted or needed, and they did nothing. Well, they did nothing for the COVID virus. What we did do is create a loneliness epidemic, quote, that the Surgeon General compared last year to smoking a dozen cigarettes daily. And to that, I say, only the 12 a day, huh? <laughs> Noob. Anyway, Gallup, not the action undertaken by a horse, the polling agency, polled about a thousand people regarding 23 professions in their most recent iteration of their honesty and ethics poll. What they found is a little disturbing. Nearly all professions have declined in how people view the moral standards of the workers inside those professions. Now, we'll get into the demographics some, but the general feeling is that we, you know, people, don't trust other people anymore. That's what it really comes down to. A profession is just a collection of people all oriented toward a common goal, right? If those people are becoming less moral, less ethical, less trustworthy, well, that profession becomes less ethical itself. And that's what we think of us, that we're getting less ethical and what we're doing is getting more shady. Now, out of the 23 professions in the survey, one had been surveyed for the first time in, in a long time, so they didn't include the past survey numbers in it. 21 have a lower rating than they did four years ago in 2019 prior to COVID, and one profession gained a point in trust. Now, who was that one shining example? Why? I think it's quite obvious. Labor union leader. And I got to say, you, you're kidding, right? Of course, overall, they're really not that trusted, but they did go up a point. We'll get to some numbers here in just a second. Now, if we're looking at 2023 versus 2019, honestly, there are a number of factors that could be affecting this. Most obviously is the COVID debacle, right? The snake-like tendrils of that disaster wound their way in and out and through many professions, medical, political, industrial, pharmaceutical, educational, transportation. No, I'll stop doing that. The economic sector, just everything, right? Then pile on top of that what was revealed about our public education system during the lockdowns to so many parents. Now we have even more financial and economic pressures. We have more racial divide, more political divide. Even the religious pressures are increasing. None of us trust any of us anymore. The problem is there are professions that probably should be trusted less, but none of us really know which ones. 
So we've just kind of defaulted to, you know, just distrusting everybody. Sounds just wonderful, doesn't it? So what exactly did Gallup find? Well, let's start with a macro look. The most trusted profession, apparently for 22 years running now, are nurses. They're currently rated at 78% of respondents, saying they believe them to have high or very high honesty and ethical standards. The rest of the top five are veterinarians at 65%, engineers at 60%, and let me just say, ouch, dentists at 59%, and medical doctors at 56%. Now, on the other end of the scale, the lowest of the low, the bottom of the barrel, the scum, are members of Congress at 6%. Uh, it's not very good. And moving up the bottom five, we have senators, slightly better than Congress, who are tied with car salespeople and advertising practitioners, all at 8%. And then stockbrokers, insurance salespeople, and business executives are all sitting at 12%. As for uh, who lost the most trust from 2019 to 2023, all of the following professions lost a full nine percentage points. Medical doctors, pharmacists, police officers, bankers, and journalists. They were followed by chiropractors, or as I call them, witch doctors, clergy, and business executives, all losing 8%. And then nurses, college teachers, and psychiatrists all lost 7%. And I'll have to go one more level because losing 6% are members of Congress, lawyers, and engineers. I mean, come on, what did we engineers ever do to you people? <clears throat> On the other end of the spectrum, gaining one point of trust, the labor union leaders. But looking at the absolute value, that only moved them from 24% of respondents thinking that they have a high or a very high ethical standard to 25%. So, I mean, they're not great, right? Others holding fairly steady are car and insurance salespeople only losing 1% and stockbrokers and dentists only losing 2%. I think the only profession I haven't mentioned now, just kind of hanging out in the middle of everything, are state governors, with a rating of a whopping 16%, losing 4% since 2019. Now, if we were to look at this from a letter grade standpoint, assuming schools still give grades because, you know, we don't want anyone feeling bad about themselves, nurses would get a C plus. Good for them. Veterinarians would get a solid D. Engineers would get the lowest of the low D minus. And hey, don't knock it. D's get degrees. And then the other 20 professions would be off to summer school, most with personal tutors to try to salvage something out of this shipwreck. There are so many ways to go with this data. I mean, I, you know, my mind just kind of flooded how I could do this. I could spend hours slicing and dicing it and analyzing it and making some graphs and everything. So get some coffee. no. I'm not going to do that. We will dig deeper, obviously, but a few comments on just the macro data again. I'm actually shocked at how untrusted some professions were prior to COVID. I would have thought dentists and doctors would have been higher. Same with police officers. And what about clergy? It would be nice to have that broken out farther as I have to believe that the damage that's been done to the Catholic Church is likely dragging that one down. But still, only 40% in 2019 for clergy, and now it's down to 32%. And that's disturbing. We'll dig into that one more for sure. After COVID, so, you know, our current numbers today, well, I'm not surprised to see all of the government personnel drop like a used mask on the sidewalk. I'm kind of surprised that anyone believes the Congress, the Senate, or governors have even a high ethical standard. Now, I know there are a few good ones out there, but wow, as a collective, I mean, can we put them all on a leaky dinghy and send them out to sea? I don't think anyone is shocked that doctors, nurses, and pharmacists dropped after COVID you know, due to COVID. 
And I think you could loosely toss dentists and chiropractors in there as well as their medical field personnel that participated in the same lies, pushing the same liquid clotting agent. I'm also not shocked that the journalists are low, now sitting at 19%, as I think most people feel they've been lied to for years now. The same goes with the psychiatrists, you know, just telling us to affirm our children. They're at 36% now. And college teachers sitting at 42%. As again, there are good ones. I know some. I had some. But overall, they're just pushing an agenda, shutting down any independent thought, berating religious beliefs, etc., etc. Now, I keep coming back to clergy, though. Less than a third believe them to hold a higher, very high ethical standard and sense of honesty. Now, 1 Timothy 3 is one of the locations, a good one, that gives us a very complete look at what a man man aspiring to be a pastor must be. Quote, It is a trustworthy saying, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires good work. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So if less than a third of the population feels clergy have a high or very high ethical standard, how many pastors and priests should either get their lives together or just pack it up? And if the clergy is really this damaged, shouldn't someone remind them of James 3? You know, quote, Do not, many of you, become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Charles Spurgeon, often called the Prince of Preachers, was often asked how one could know if they'd been called to be a pastor. Part of his answer, the most important aspect, was that you needed, quote, an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. Now, he expanded that thought, quote, In order to a true call to the ministry, there must be an irresistible, overwhelming, craving, and raging thirst for telling others what God has done to our own souls. If any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor, or a grocer, or a farmer, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a senator, or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. He is not the man in whom dwells the Spirit of God in its fullness, for a man so filled with God would utterly weary of any pursuit but that for which his inmost soul pants. If, on the other hand, you can say that for all the wealth of both the Indies, you could not and dare not espouse any other calling so as to be put aside from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, then depend upon it. If other things be equally satisfactory, you have the signs of this apostleship. Basically, he said that if you can see yourself doing anything else, go do it. Don't pursue being a pastor. Now, that's not the only qualification, obviously, but if we started there, likely a large number of pastors would, you know, fall out of the office and pursue these other careers. His other points were that you had to be able to teach. You must be seeing some measure of conversion work in your regular life before considering becoming a pastor. And finally, a church needs to call you to preach. In other words, until you're deemed ready to be a pastor by a church body, you're not ready to be a pastor. Okay, back to our story. Uh, let's look at the raw data for a few minutes. I'm putting the link to the PDF file in the show notes so you can dig around in it if you'd like. I'm primarily going to focus on clergy and maybe engineering because I can. 
but mostly we'll look at clergy. So when looking at the data, we see that only 6% of respondents felt that clergy had a very high rate of honesty and ethics, with 26% feeling it was high, and then 45% believing it was average. More importantly, 20% felt it was low or very low. Engineers, as a comparison, had 12% rating them as very high, 48% as high, 35% as average, with only 4% rating them as low or very low. Now, I should be happy about that. I mean, that's a solid overall rating for engineers. In fact, only nurses did better with only 3% rating them as low or very low. But again, I'm, I'm really concerned that clergy, people supposed to be above reproach, guiding the flock, caring for the very souls of humanity, is as low as it is. Looking at past surveys going back to 2007, it appears that clergy had their best year in 2008 with 56% of respondents giving them a high or a very high rating. And breaking it down to the granular level, we find that males tended to have a little better view of clergy than females. Whites tended to have a slightly better perception than non-whites. Regarding age, it appears that those 55 or older viewed clergy in a more positive light, followed by those 18 to 34, with those aged in the middle, the 35 to 54, being the most cynical, apparently. That's kind of interesting. I'll be honest, I'm not sure what to make of that. Surprisingly, at least to me, it appears the more education you've acquired the more positively you perceive clergy. Now, I would have thought the opposite. And along the same lines, the higher the household income, the more positive the perception. And not surprisingly, those identifying as Republicans had a more positive view than those identifying as Independent or Democrat, but not by a very wide margin. Again, I would have thought it would have been a very clear distinction. That in itself actually worries me a little, as clergy, if they're preaching per the text would stand in direct odds with practically everything that Democrats purport to believe, especially today. Now, oddly enough, although the values are different, you see the exact same trends for engineers except for one. We are more trusted the farther left you go on the political spectrum, which I think clearly means one thing. I haven't talked to enough people yet. No, honestly, though, I've said this for probably a couple decades now, an engineer or really people in a STEM field, the science, technology, engineering and math, we're not the people that you typically find to be Christians. It's really more of an exception than it is a norm. The, the simple fact is that those in the STEM field work much more on the logical side of things and Christianity or even just religion in general is typically viewed as being at odds with logic. Now, I find that to be both absolutely correct and completely wrong. In fact, I've also said for many years that Protestant Christianity is the only religion that's so illogical that it's the only one that makes any logical sense. You know, what I mean by that is that all other religions have a logical structure to them, a clearly identifiable theme of man-centric concepts. Protestant Christianity doesn't have that. The actions and reactions, the sacrifices and rewards, none of it makes logical sense from a human worldview. You must be able to see it from a spiritual, ultimate worldview to at least some degree for it to make any sense at all. That's typically perceived at being at odds with those in STEM fields. So what's going on here? Why does nobody trust anybody? Or, or why does everybody trust nobody? Something like that. Should we trust people even? Well, if you look in the Bible, and 
again, there are multiple roads you could go down here. I've chosen one. The issue of trust or faith can only be truly applied to God. God is the only being that we could ever place our faith and trust in who will never fail us, will never disappoint us, never break our trust. Humans are made in the image of God. I'd argue that humans, by created nature, are beings designed to be both trusting and trustworthy. Unfortunately, like sin has done with everything else, it severely marred and twisted all aspects of this image. But even so, what does the Bible say? Well, Jesus said that the entirety of the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, in essence, could be boiled down to two commandments. Quote, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now that's the preeminent commandment, and that's followed directly by, quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, with regard to humanity, we now have two things we need to understand. What is love, and who is my neighbor? Luckily, the Bible has some answers for us on these questions as well. The Pharisees, and the Jews in general, had all the laws concerning how to act and deal with a neighbor, but they really didn't want to love their neighbor, so they added on more, just many extra rules and caveats that your neighbor practically didn't exist anymore by the time they got done. It was so narrowly defined that there was almost no way to qualify as being a neighbor to someone anymore. But Jesus, when he was asked by a scholar of the law, who his neighbor was, exactly, as always, to test Jesus on the law, trying to catch him, well, he responded with the parable of the Good Samaritan. This was a scandalous parable. A Jewish man beaten, robbed, left for dead on a desolate road, known for being littered with robbers and thugs. And thankfully, a man of God, a priest, comes on the scene, clergy, if you will. But for some reason, whether he was afraid of being robbed himself, or he didn't want to make himself unclean, or he just didn't want to be bothered, well, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by. Against all odds on this desolate road, however, another man, a Levite, not a priest, but in that lineage of those chosen by God and charged with caring for the tabernacle and later the temple, he happened along. But for whatever excuse he had, he did the exact same thing. And then, although this was essentially impossible, yet another man, in fact, a man that would not travel this road ordinarily, only in an emergency, a Samaritan, a hated, disgusting Jewish pagan half-breed, an enemy of the Jews, came up to this beaten man. And this is where the scandal really ramped up. This horrible person, well, he stopped. He used his provisions, his clothing, he ripped into bandages, he administered first aid, and then he chose to walk, leading his pack animal with this Jew riding on the top until they came to an inn, where the Samaritan spent his money for a room, used his night to care for the man, spent more of his money to ensure the innkeeper cared for him, and promised to pay for whatever else was needed when he came back through town. So who was the neighbor to this victim? The Samaritan, the one who showed compassion, the one who showed love when he didn't have to, when it made no cultural sense to do so, when nobody would blame him if he just walked by on the other side of the road. See, our neighbor is humanity. It really comes down to that. If it's a human... It's your neighbor. Now, what about love? How do we love our neighbor? Well, odds are we won't come across a beaten down, robbed individual that we need to care for. So to answer that, I'd have to go to the love chapter itself, 1 Corinthians 13. And keep in mind that although, yes, this can be used accurately to speak of a marriage, as it's probably used most often, Paul was not giving the church at Corinth a quick lesson on marriage right here. 
chapter 13, as what I'm assuming was just pure luck, is found wedged between chapter 12 and 14. Now, chapter 12 was a discourse on spiritual gifts in the church, that not everyone would have the same gifts, that no gift or gifts were to be viewed as greater blessings or more important than others. Chapter 14 was a discourse on prophecy and speaking in tongues. A marriage chapter doesn't make much sense being placed between those two, right? Chapter 13 is there for the purpose of contrasting love. Love for your brother and sister, love for your neighbor, love in the church, with what the Corinthians were holding as preeminent, speaking in tongues and prophesying. Paul was saying that you could do all these other things, be the super Christian, but if you don't have love, who are you really? The listing of what love is, is therefore not as much of a to-do list as it is simply a description of what love is by definition. And because love is comprised of all these attributes, that's why it's more important. It's more powerful than any or all of the sign gifts than any outward action for the sake of action. So what is love? Well, it's patient. It's kind. It's not braggadocious. It's not jealous. It's not conceited. It's not selfish or self-centered. It seeks for and takes joy in justice and truth and righteousness and on and on. This is describing agape love, a love we should strive for, but only God can display perfectly. But what else does love do? Well, it rejoices with truth. It believes all things, and it hopes all things. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So if I were to piece things together, we're to love our neighbor, meaning we're to hope in and believe people. I don't think that's a stretch. That said, I do believe we need to be realistic and understanding that there are those that are out to swindle us. There are those who are out to take advantage of people. So we need to be aware. We need to be careful and smart. But if we have no reason to distrust people, we should give them the benefit of the doubt, at least initially. In other words, this could be the Reagan doctrine of trust but verify, right? As an engineering student, I attended one of the few engineering colleges in the United States that offered induction as a member of the Order of the Engineer. As such, we took a pledge, and we wear a small stainless steel ring on the pinky of our dominant hand. This signifies our pledged obligation. The pledge states, and some of this is what we said in pledge, and some of it is what the individual administering the pledge read, but it says, quote, I am an engineer. In my profession, I take deep pride. To it, I owe solemn obligations. Since the Stone Age, human progress has been spurred by the engineering genius. Engineers have made usable nature's vast resources of material and energy for mankind's benefit. Engineers have vitalized and turned to practical use the principles of science and the means of technology. Were it not for this heritage of accumulated experience, my efforts would be feeble. As an engineer, I pledge to practice integrity and fair dealing, tolerance and respect, and to uphold devotion to the standards and the dignity of my profession, conscious always that my skill carries with it the obligation to serve humanity by making the best use of Earth's precious wealth. As an engineer, I shall participate in none but honest enterprises. When needed, my skill and knowledge shall be given without reservation for the public good. In the performance of duty and in fidelity to my profession, I shall give the utmost. Now, clearly, this is not a Christian obligation. Right? It's not a Christian organization. But believe it or not, I've kept this oath in my mind for the 23 plus years since I took it. I feel that I do have an obligation to be truthful, honest, respectful, to perform in my career fairly, with integrity. And I can say this, the only reason that this oath really means anything to me is because I am a Christian. 
because of that, my oath means something. And I can say that I've always performed my job with integrity and honesty, both because of the oath and because I'm a Christian. So back to the clergy. Why are they viewed so poorly? Well, let's be honest. Christianity has moved from a single church, the universal small C Catholic Church, to the Reformation, where we then had the capital C Catholic Church and Protestant religion. And now, 500 years after that, we've had heresies pop up and put down. We've had sexual scandals all throughout the Catholic Church. In 2022, the Southern Baptists got hit with a major sexual scandal on their cover-ups. We've had how many high-profile pastors and teachers fall from Jimmy Swaggart to Ravi Zacharias, many of those in between, right? We have health, wealth, prosperity preachers scamming people out of money, blaming them for not having enough faith to become rich or healthy. We've had scam after scam. We've had those that wrongly predict the second coming of Christ, others that start their own cults. We have the seeker-sensitive movement and the new apostolic reformation, more interested in butts in the seats, money in the plate, feel-good, meaningless TED Talk-type messages and rock concert-type worship music, false signs, false wonders, false hope, the opposite of love, and the list goes on and on. And all of those are lumped under one category, Christianity. Now, I'll be honest, I'm a little surprised that clergy as a category are trusted as much as they are. Jesus wasn't speaking hyperbolically when he said that narrow is the gate, difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I just don't think we grasp how narrow, how difficult, and how few. Now, I've also said this for a number of years, the Protestant religion is in desperate need of another reformation. We have gone so far off the rails, so far off the narrow, difficult path, that there are many who not only can't see the path any longer, but just don't care. That broad, well-paved downhill road, ah, it's much easier. Now, the Bible tells us to love our neighbor. That's both trusting, but verifying, and being trustworthy and willing to be verified. We're told to let our yes be yes. Don't make promises. Just do what you say you're going to do. We're told to be truthful, not to cheat others. No one just scales. We're told to deal fairly with others. This applies also, and probably even more strictly, to pastors. They are called to an even higher standard. Clergy should be the most trusted profession in the world, by far. But clearly they're not. This is sadly a commentary on all aspects of society, really, with regard to the Christian faith, from those that have nothing to do with the church, to the lay people, to the religion in general, to the church, to the clergy specifically, not to mention the adherents, those who claim to be Christian and show the world that there's no difference between them and the rest of the world. Sadly, we have a mess. So what do we do? Well, I mean, we could try another 95 theses. Not sure what church door to nail it up on, though, and I have a feeling that when we compiled everything, we'd need a few more sheets of parchment. In reality, I don't think there's anything that we can do from a macro level unless God's plan includes another revival or reformation, right? We're just not going to be able to do it on our own strength. So I'd say that we're at a point of act locally. We personally need to clean up our lives, and as we strive to clean up our lives internally, we need to carefully present God to the world externally by how we live and what we say and do, how we love our neighbor, how we love each other. If we claim the name of Christ, we need to live like it, even if we have internal struggles with, that we're working through. That's not to say that we need to present a false sense of perfection. We just need to be real. We need to act like Christians while being honest that being a Christian doesn't mean you have to be perfect before you come to Christ or that you'll be perfect after just that you're now striving to be more like Christ every day. And we need to be bold about what we believe. Despite what some may say, I don't believe that all people are called to be street preachers or soapbox evangelists, but none of us should hide our beliefs from others. I say that with this caveat. I do know 
that in some heavily persecuted parts of the world, there has to be a real discernment and wisdom as to what you do, as you could probably do more good for the promotion of the gospel by being careful than you could by being dead. Now, for those of us in the United States, that's not really a concern. We need to be unashamed of who we are and what we believe. Remember, the Bible, Jesus, in fact, warns us about being ashamed of him. Don't hide who you are and what you believe. Make sure you're living it. Show people you are trustworthy because you're a Christian. One caveat, you need to get into the Word, and you need to get on your knees. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. That's crucially important here. As for the church, I know the general response to leaving your current church and moving to another is don't, right? Unless there's a clear reason, don't do it. And I agree with that. But we need to attend churches that esteem the name of God, churches that believe the Bible, that take great care to preach the Bible rightly, sing songs that are theologically rich and accurate. Put simply, we need to ensure that the church we attend is a Bible-believing, God-fearing, worship-filled church. Too often we're attending church because we've always attended that one, or it's close to home, or it's the only one in my preferred denomination in the area, or they have some stuff for the kids, or I like the music. Everyone who's anyone goes there, and the list goes on. Somewhere down that list, we might come across some sort of actual important things, you know, like theology. A number of years ago, I was part of a pastoral search committee. I put together a survey for anyone attending the church. I had enough information requested so I could tell members, non-members, adult, youth, etc. I had one question in there, why do you attend this church? And I had eight possible choices they could pick from, and they could pick as many of them as they'd like. The choices were the Sunday morning service, location or convenience, music, Sunday school, the fellowship or community, activities other than Sunday morning, uh, parents and guardians bring me, and my friends or relatives go here. Now, keep in mind, they could choose as many of those answers as they'd like. For adult members, the top answer, with a whopping 21.7%, was fellowship or community. Number two, with 20.7%, was Sunday morning service. Then friends and relatives got here at 14.1%, and then location and convenience and activities other than Sunday morning, they tied with 12.6%. Quite literally, 100% of people could have chosen Sunday morning service and chosen as many other things as they wanted as well, but only 20.7%, that's two people out of every 10 that chose the Sunday morning service as their reason for coming. Now, at that time, this church probably had around, I don't know, I guess maybe 120 or so attendees on a Sunday morning. I only got 53 total responses to the survey. This was a survey to help guide the pastoral search committee looking for the next pastor. Now, out of that small number, the percentages I just gave came from only 38 adult members. 38. That right there should tell you something. So when you break it down, it means that about seven, seven adult church members cared enough to fill out and return a survey and came to the church, at least in part, for the Sunday morning service. Seven. That's a problem. And I don't think it's any different in most churches. And I don't think it's gotten any better in the six or seven years since that survey was taken. If the main church service of the week isn't the main draw, I think we need to at least ask, why not? And then figure out what to do about that. And if you have seven members out of a hundred they care enough to participate in their church direction and that feel this church has something to offer in the main service of the week, 
How in the world do we expect the outside world to trust the shepherd that we clearly don't? In the United States, there are about, what, infinity billion churches? The farther south you go, the more street corners there are with churches on them. When I moved to Alabama 23 years ago, I looked up in the yellow pages, remember those, Baptist Church. In the Tuscaloosa area, not the big city, Birmingham, the smaller one of Tuscaloosa, I could have attended a different Baptist church every Sunday for, I believe it was, three years. How many of those churches would be rock-solid churches like I previously described? I don't know, to be honest, but definitely not all of them. We need to ensure that we're in a solid church and support that church with our time, our talents, and our treasure. Grow solid biblical churches. Support biblically solid pastors. Live biblically solid lives. That's what we can do. And really, look, me doing that or you doing that won't really do anything. But us doing that and more of us doing that, people stepping away from the churches and supposed leaders that are simply playing church, in some cases blatantly ignoring what the Bible says about church, that are more about a show than they are about the gospel, that would do something, right? Starving out the charlatans, the wolves, the hucksters, those who preach political or racial division, those who preach a social gospel, that would do something. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking you to be hypercritical. Not implying your pastor or church in general is perfect. I'm not even saying that you must agree with the pastor or the church on every bit of doctrine or theology. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find that. But I think we all do, or at least should know, when a church is just simply not a Bible-believing, God-fearing church. Those churches, so-called, need to be left with empty pews and empty offering plates. There was a time when the clergy was, I'd wager, the most trusted profession— what would this country or this world be like if we could get them back into even the top three? Can you imagine the world we'd be living in if we trusted our clergy and if the population in general trusted the clergy in general? What would it be like if the majority of the town, the state, the country we lived in looked to our pastors as leaders in thought and deed as the shepherds that they're supposed to be? The average person speaks about 16,000 words per day, with women generally speaking slightly more than men. I know, the thought is that women speak a lot more than men, but per the data, on average, the difference isn't that great. Each segment of my podcast consists of about five to 6,000 words each. In just over two years of doing this, I've typed and spoken just shy of 1.5 million words. Looking at how many words are in the dictionaries of various people groups and languages, we have a wide range. According to Wikipedia, the fewest words in a language is that of the Tokipona. This is a made-up language created with the sole purpose of simplicity. Uh, that only has 120 words. Arabic has anywhere from 40,000 to 120,000 words, depending on the dictionary. Old Dutch only had 9,000 words, but the most comprehensive Dutch dictionary today has about 400,000 words. The Finns have about 800,000 words. The French have just over 408,000. Germans have 330,000. Not sure how they're counting that, though, because they just combine words to make new words. And you could have words that are like, I don't know, like 20 or 30 letters long that express a thought in German. The most comprehensive Korean dictionary has nearly 1.15 million words. The Polish have a mere 140,000 words. I mean, insert your favorite Polak joke here. Uh, yes, I know that's racist or something. <laughs> don't worry, they don't understand what's going on. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I didn't make it any better. I better cancel me. 
The Russians apparently only have 220,000 words. The Scots have just over 80,000. And I think 17,500 of them or so are just different forms of the word ach. The Spanish have around 93,000 words. Swedes have 600,000. The English has as many as 740,000. The winner, though, are the Tamil people of South Asia, who, as luck would have it, I mean, they speak Tamil. Let me talk about luck of the draw here. They have just over 1.5 million words in their language. Seems a little excessive. I mean, at some point, don't you think you have enough words? So how many words do you actually need in order to communicate effectively? No idea. I don't even know why you'd ask me that. I'm not a fan of English class. Never was. Verbs, nouns, predicate nominatives, onomatopoeia. And no, I neither know what that word means nor how to spell it. Thank you, Google. I guess it depends on the language and how words are defined and used. And that adds in some real complexities to the conversation. Dictionaries are updated on a regular basis. My parents still have a dictionary from 19-twickety-something. I think it's actually older than paper, made of dried papyrus leaves or whatever. I don't know, whatever papyrus is. So when that dictionary was created, I think on day five of creation, the dictionary wasn't just constantly being updated, but in modern internet dictionary times, depending on the dictionary publisher, new words are being added and definitions updated as much as quarterly from what I can find. And we're not talking about just a word or two. We're talking about a fairly substantial number of words. Taking a look at what words are being added and how definitions can change, well, that tells us a few things. We know that speech changes. We know that definitions do change. We know that word usage, even the parts of speech of the word, actually change. Take the word gay, for example. Used to mean happy. Then it described a homosexual. Then it was a slur that we shouldn't use. And, and now I think it's okay to use it again. I think. The Second Amendment is perpetually up for discussion these days. The text is fairly simple. Quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, what does well-regulated mean? What does militia mean? What does keeping and bearing arms uninfringed mean? Well, to understand that, we'd have to look at the context of when it was written, which we're not going to dig into it, but let's just say the gun control nuts, yeah, they don't really look into the context of this. And we see the same problem in the Bible. Well, not with the Bible itself. The Bible's fine. It's the people not understanding the context. That's the problem. A few examples. Genesis 1.28 in the LSB says in part, quote, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The NIV says fill the earth, NLT says fill, ESV, NKJV, NASB, and CSB, and nearly every translation says fill. But the King James Version, you know, the version of the Bible that Jesus used, it says replenish. Well, if I say replenish today, it means to fill again, the re being the again part. But when the KJV was originally created, replenish could mean either fill or fill again. But those who want to try to wedge evolution in the Bible, well, they just say, see, the KJV says replenish, meaning the earth was obviously populated with something or someone before Adam and Eve. But no, no, it doesn't. That's just the KJV and the language changing over time. Context is important. John 3.16 says, quote, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the verse that, most everybody points to, to justify a free will salvation. God openly offers it to all, and we just make the decision. 
Without getting into the Armenian and Calvinist debate, the word in question is world. At least one of the main words is world. We today think of world as meaning all the people in the world and all history. Then actually, that's not true. We don't typically think of all history or even the future. We generally think of all the people in the world right now. But does world mean all? In the Greek, the word for world can be literal or figurative. It can mean the planet. It can mean all people on the planet, or it can mean some of the people on the planet. If we go one more verse down, verse 17, we read, quote, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Those uses of the word world are not all the same. So what is the context of world in verse 16? Well, you need to do some letting the Bible interpret the Bible here, and it would be more accurately defined as some people from around the globe, some from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, you can argue that for yourselves if you'd like. Well, just a few days ago, and this was found everywhere, but we'll use the article found on bookriot.com. Headline, dictionary.com releases list of new and updated words for 2024. So in the latest update to dictionary.com, their winter 2024 update, I guess, quote, the latest update incorporates words, phrases, and meanings as they are used in the modern lexicon, rather than how some may think they should be used. So they've added 327 new words, they added 173 new definitions to existing words, and most concerning to me, they've apparently revised 1,228 existing definitions. Now, I say that's concerning because the direction we're heading as a society, as a world, well, it's not great if you haven't noticed. Case in point, and I mentioned this in a long past episode, the definition of vaccine changed in January of 2021. If you recall, that's right before the so-called COVID vaccine was rolled out, and many, many people, including the inventor of the mRNA gene therapy technology, well, they were shouting from the rooftops that this technology was not a vaccine, and it was never designed to be a vaccine. Now, of course, we had Fauci, Burks, and Trump, as well as the media, the administration, etc., who were all praising this wonderful, amazing new vaccine that isn't a vaccine by any stretch of the definition. So they revised the definition. They used to have a very simple definition talking about a vaccine being either killed microorganisms or live attenuated or whatever. Well, they've added in that it could be genetic material, including mRNA, and they, they completely changed it to try to create some cover for the COVID vaccine and for big pharma. And as we are rapidly learning, well, pharma lied to us, and Fauci lied to us, and the CDC and the FDA and NIH, I mean, all of those lied to us. And, uh, and now we're finding out that this will most likely have multi-generational impacts on all of humanity. Sometime in the first half of 2017, Dictionary.com changed the definition of migrant in order to essentially take a cheap shot at Trump. So when they revise definitions, I'm a little worried about what revisions they're making and why. If we don't know what words mean or meant in the context of the time, or like with the Second Amendment, if we, the people, if we don't have or don't care what the definitions are and how the definitions change, well, then the definitions change and the argument changes, and then that's not good for us. Unfortunately, I can't find a complete list of added or revised definitions. It's possible that if I contact a dictionary.com, they might be able to provide that, but they're not putting a full list out there, at least for right now, and I can't find anyone who's compiled that list yet. 
I even asked Bing's AI chatbot, Copilot, and it said that there didn't appear to be a complete list anywhere. Okay, so we'll just go with what Dictionary.com did put out there, which is a sampling of various new words that they've added to the dictionary. And even in that list, it gives us a good idea of where society is going. As they state, quote, All of our dictionary work is descriptive. We describe language as it is really used, not just how we or others may wish it would be used. Okay, well, that's a pretty harmless statement in itself. Not sure I believe it entirely, but let's take a let's take it at face value, I guess, and let's kind of see what they've given us as a sample of the new words added to their dictionary that are allegedly being adopted into our vernacular. Let's start with some pop culture. Girl dinner. This is a small meal for one that takes very little prep work, consists of things like cold cuts, cheeses, fruits, etc. And apparently... I quite enjoy and partake of girl dinners on a semi-regular basis. I mean, who knew? And next we have the ick. Uh, this was, and I, I guess still is used, to denote illness, as in, you know, don't come around me, I've got the ick. But apparently it's now being used to express feelings of disgust or dislike as well. And next we have some words that have just become popular more recently, I guess, I don't know. Range anxiety. Ugh. Quote, noun, the apprehension or fear that an electric vehicle's battery will run out of power before reaching one's intended destination or charge station. But remember, EVs are probably the best thing since a flaming loaf of sliced toxic bread, and yet the dictionary now has a word describing an aspect of, of how they suck. Okay, clean this word up for you just a little bit. You can use your own foul-mouthed imagination. And poopification. <clears throat> The reason I mention this one is because this seems to be one of the small themes of words that they're adding. The definition is basically how an online platform, say TikTok, offers the users certain benefits or services in order to hook them, and then it gradually degrades and declines as they, quote, pursue more and more profits at the expense of users. This is part of the greedy corporation theme, the them versus us mentality that's being pushed by the socialists that are in power right now. This next one irritates me, I'll be honest. Skip lagging. Uh, this is the process of purchasing a plane ticket that has a connecting airport, but instead of taking that second flight, the final leg, you stay in the connecting city because that's the one you wanted to go to in the first place. What people have discovered is that in some cases, it's literally cheaper to buy a plane ticket with that connecting flight in the city you wanted to go to than it is to just buy a ticket to that city. So you buy the cheaper ticket and you don't take the second leg. You skip out on the second leg. This isn't illegal, but it does violate some or maybe most airline contracts of service when you buy their ticket. But I got to ask, why do they care? I mean, you paid the price they asked. By not getting on that second flight, that's that less weight that they have to fly. So, I mean, it's a small amount of gas savings, right? If all you have is a carry-on and you just leave with it and don't get on the next one, why would they care? Well, they just don't like that people found the best deal they could. If they don't like it, then fix the pricing structure. It's that simple. So, from a Christian worldview, are we wrong in doing something like this? Well, yeah, yes and no. It's not illegal, Right. But if this is buried in their terms and conditions for the airline, well, <laughs> I'm sorry, but nobody reads those. They've been made so cumbersome with legalese that nobody reads them and everybody knows that nobody reads them and nobody truly expects anyone to read them. But now that we know what these are and that it's in there, I, I don't know. I guess I'd put it in the same category as speeding. If you do it, 
just be prepared to pay the penalty, whatever that may be, if you get caught. I won't claim that's completely right, but I guess that's kind of how you look at it, right? Uh, we have a disgusting-sounding one now. Bed rotting. This is not, like you may expect, something found on My 600 Pound Life. This is the process of just spending as much time as possible in bed during the day with your snacks and your devices, your books, or whatever you want, as a retreat from the grind of activity or stress. Can you imagine people 50 years ago, 100 years ago, bed rotting? Now, I'm not saying I'm a super-driven individual, but wow, I think I just lose my mind laying there. And I've got a very nice, very comfy bed, but I just can't imagine staying in there just, uh, you know, rotting. So, can you do this sort of thing from time to time? Yeah, I mean, I'd say probably, but the Bible does caution us about being lazy. In one of my favorite verses, Proverbs 26.15, it says, quote, The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. <laughs> and man, can I identify with that. Ah, <sighs> to my very core. But somehow I managed to continue bringing my hand back to my mouth over and over and over again. <laughs> Seriously, though, we're, we're cautioned not to be lazy, to be a sluggard. So can you bed rot sometimes? I'm sure I don't think that's a problem, but if it's a regular practice, well, there may be bigger issues that need to be addressed. And next one is one that, I mean, it just plagues me all the time. It's a curse, really. Pretty privilege. This is like white privilege, but it's an advantage that we, you know, the pretty, have over the rest of you plain faces because we, quote, fit into the beauty standards of our culture. Like I said, it's really more of a curse than anything. I the real problem is that the Bible tells us to not be conceited or filled with pride, but I mean, when you're as pretty as me and my fellow privileged, <laughs> that gets really difficult. Okay, let's move into science, shall we? We'll start with stellar nursery. Yeah, this is what it sounds like, and it's another small theme in the new words, the pushing of evolution theory. Uh, because the James Webb Space Telescope is giving us clearer and clearer pictures of deeper and deeper space than ever before, those claiming to be scientists are telling us that we're seeing molecular clouds where new stars are being formed. Ah, the stellar nursery. This has long been a theory that somewhere outside of our universe there exists the Oort cloud, where new stars are formed just all of the time and somehow being slingshot into our universe. This was theorized in 1950 by Dutch astronomer Jan Oort. The problem is that this is just a theory. They've never actually seen the Oort cloud, never actually seen stars form. The Bible tells us that God made the stars past tense. It doesn't say he started the process. It said he made them. Now, could there be a process that creates stars? You know, I mean, God can do what he wants, but I'd feel comfortable saying he didn't do that. And here's why. The Oort cloud theory was created because scientists determined that there was a lifetime to stars. Probably correct. Eventually, they burn out. They go supernova or whatever. The amount of time they believe has passed since the Big Bang well, that would mean that most, if not all, of the stars formed during the Big Bang uh, would have burnt out by now. And then we'd have no stars. But we do have stars. So the only scientifically logical possibility is that stars are just being formed all the time and are being injected into our universe. And if the universe is as old as they say, well, they'd be correct. They would have to have newly formed stars. But if the universe is about 6,000 years old, well, then the stars are practically brand new. We have plenty of time with the stars that God created and maintains by his will. Moving on, how about boiling billion? 
Well, this was, quote, a period of, in the Earth's development occurring between 1,800 and 800 million years ago that is characterized by relative geological and climactic stability, slow evolutionary development, and low levels of atmospheric oxygen. Oh. Uh, and how do they know about this slow boil? Eh, they don't, actually. Th this, again, is just a theory. There's no real science behind it, because they, there can't be. That age range didn't exist. But they must have it for the Big Bang theory and, and evolution to exist. Moving into the world of fashion, let's start with Barbie core. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's pretty much what you think it is. This is dressing up in pink, you know, pink accessories, decor, everything else, just like Barbie. Now to me, this is really stupid, as this is nothing but a fad. This Barbie craze, to this extent at least, will die out in a year or two, and then you're stuck with Barbie core in your dictionary, like a silly Kenhead. Next is slow fashion. Now this may apply to me both in the fact that I'm slow to change my fashion, like I never change my fashion. I don't understand fashion. And it can apply to me because whatever fashion I'm wearing, it's definitely moving slow, because I'm not in any sort of a hurry. That's, however, not the definition. This is a greeny environmental thing, actually, which is the third theme that I found in the smattering of words they chose to give us as examples. It's, quote, a movement among clothing producers and consumers that emphasizes eco-friendly, well-made clothing, maintenance, and repair of garments to extend their lifespan, and a general reduction of one's consumption of new clothing items. Now, in itself, this is fine. I have no problem with this. This is how things used to be for, like, all of us. Most people my age, at least, remember having jeans with patches on them, because apparently all we did was just slide everywhere on our knees, just like, just like all the time. My dad had his glue that he could glue the flapping sole of my shoe back on with. My mom could and still really can make or fix anything where thread and fabric is involved. So she did and still does do that. My problem with this is the eco-friendly. Can we just stop, please? We, we don't have to couch everything in saving the planet. How about the fact that this is just good consumerism, good sense, financially smart? Can we please stop with the planet-saving trope? It literally doesn't need saving. God isn't wearing a path in front of his throne, just pacing back and forth, hoping and print, well, speaking to himself that we'll be more eco-friendly, or else, you know, what can he possibly do? And so, as to not restate all of this of what I just said, if you don't mind, just go ahead and apply what I just said to the next few definitions as well. Sustainable fashion. This is using ecologically responsible materials and manufacturing processes in order to reduce our environmental impacts, as well as reusing products. Which brings us to the next one, circular fashion. This is the ongoing reuse of clothing and accessories using minimal manufacturing to continue using them. Then we come to eco-chic. These are styles and products that are both attractive and planet-friendly. Now, my mom has, and is quite literally today, an eco-chic, slow and sustainable circular fashionista, and she was that before it was eco-cool. I'm skipping the word shacket and shorthalls because, frankly... They just make me angry by their very existence. You can look those up if you'd like. Moving to entertainment, we have Cozy. This is a genre of mystery story with little suspense and an absence of or a very little bit of explicit violence and sexual content, or as I call them, <laughs> boring. I mean, bring on the explicit violence and sex, please. <laughs> Am I right? No, no, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not right. Uh, these sound like what I'd identify as the Encyclopedia Brown or Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys or Boxcar Children or I don't know, whatever passes for that kind of story today. Those are wholesome, safe, entertaining, and fun stories. 
when looking into movies, the directors, producers, they strive in general for something less than an R rating in their movies because they know that those generally do better in and out of the theater. Now, today, what passes for PG and PG-13, as well as R and really G in some cases, well, that's all slid from when I was a kid. You can get away with a lot more in each of these categories than you could just 35 years ago. That said, families still generally strive for more family-friendly movies. Less sex, less language, less innuendo, violence, well, I mean, I don't know. In some action movies, I think we, and I know that I, give it a pass, but maybe less realistic violence, less gore. So it's interesting that these stories that appear to be family-friendly, fun stories are called cozies. I think this is a good description. The feeling cozy is a good feeling, and wouldn't it be nice to read a book or watch a TV show or a movie that just made you feel kind of good rather than a lot of what's out there right now being pushed at us today? Next is something grossly annoying to me, the Bechdel test. Quote, a test of gender stereotyping and inequality in fiction, having a number of variations and used especially with movies based on whether the work includes at least two fairly important female characters who talk to each other about something besides a man. Again, can we just stop? Then no, no we can't. No, we certainly can't. We need to be fair about everything. And by fair, I mean we need to be reverse racist and reverse sexist. That's how we make sure everything is fair. I can't even imagine trying to write a story or a movie today, at least for the mainstream, the number of hoops you have to jump through, and this is what you get in a godless worldview. Even in non-Christian movies and stories, people were written as people and stories made sense. Now we have to have the strong female characters that know everything instantly, can do everything instantly, and can win in all situations against anyone and anything. This isn't realistic. It's not even realistic with regard to superhero movies. Part of the reason we so love the movies of the past is that we can identify with the characters, either male or female, young or old. We see a character arc. We see growth. We see struggles. Challenges failed. Challenges overcome. We see humans as designed as and as they exist today. What's being pushed, as stated by the Bechdel test, is a false sense of humanity that none of us can identify with. I don't know about you, but since COVID shut down theaters... Well, I really haven't cared to see more than maybe a few of the new movies that have come out. And out of that small handful, I still haven't seen some of them because they're just not as much fun anymore. But let's make sure we get our representation and DEI values right, you know, for fairness. Uh, moving into sports, would you believe that Tommy John surgery, which is the repairing of a torn ligament in the elbow, common among baseball pitchers primarily, which has been done for 50 years now, and also turf toe, which is another ligament injury, this one being the big toe, which has been officially diagnosed for two years less than Tommy John's been done. They're just now getting into Dictionary.com. I mean, wow, maybe it's just me, but I'm kind of shocked that those haven't been in there. Nothing else in the sports category I care about. Let's move to family and relationships. Let's start with squish. Well, this is apparently an intense feeling of infatuation for someone, but only in a platonic way. This would be... A best friend, right? Maybe someone uh, is a hero to you, someone you look up to. Relationships have got to be, I think, the most complicated they've ever been, at least in modern times. We've got friends. We've got best friends or besties. We've got best friends forever, friends with benefits, frenemies, people in the friend zone, and now squish, uh, squishes, squish eye. This makes it sound like this may be one, like a one-way type relationship, similar to someone being friend zoned. And that implies to me someone being used for their more than squishy feelings. 
Now, I might be reading too much into it. I don't know. But the second definition says that this is a derogatory term as used in politics that describes a politician who's perceived by their party as being soft and willing to compromise. And they say specifically, quote, especially a Republican. Oh, and yeah, I'd agree. The Republican Party is full of squishy members. Or I'll still use the old term, rhino, Republicans in name only. We've got a lot of those. I mean, shoot, in West Virginia, I've got Shelley Moore Capito here, a Republican <laughs> senator who has a 40% conservative voting record this session, as measured by Heritage Action, and an overall lifetime record of like 48%. She's a squish. She's literally a nothing in the Senate overall. And she's a Democrat this session. Squishy rhinos like her should be fired and recalled or impeached. or They should just really quit. I mean, they're just useless. Moving on, they're also including girl mom, girl dad, boy mom, and boy dad. And these are as annoying as, in my humble opinion, correct opinion, as saying that something like fur parent. No, you're not a fur parent or a boy. or You're a mom. You're a dad. You're a pet owner. Why do we need to complicate this to try to make it sound, well, cool isn't the exact word I'm looking for. Uh, moving to health and wellness. First up. We have sound bath. Now, personally, I'm more of a cacophony showerer myself, but for those that like the sound bath, it's the process of immersing yourself in the sounds of singing bowels. Sorry, that's singing bowls, which is completely different. Bells, chimes, or whatever. And it's in order to aid in relaxation and meditation, which will restore your mental and physical wellness. Okay, but the problem is that it's really when you boil it down, it's uh, it's Eastern mysticism, uh, which as Christians, we're not supposed to do that. The Bible is clear that meditation means focusing on the Word of God. Uh, this could be through reading, listening, studying, praying, but at no time are we to just, you know, empty our minds. If you clear everything out of your mind, you're opening it up to receive something, and no, God isn't speaking to us. Please stop doing the thing where you pray, and then you're just silent for a bit, letting God talk to you. You literally have no way to know if that voice that you just heard is the Holy Spirit, your own thought, or a demon. We're not told anywhere to just sit there, be silent, clear our minds, and let God speak to us. That's a lie by squishy, see what I did there, evangelies who are more interested in an emotional response than they are in preaching the Bible. I don't have a problem with relaxing music and relaxing soundscapes. I also don't have a problem with just kind of pushing out the chaos from your mind, but the Eastern form of clearing your mind of all thought, that's bad. And that goes along with yoga or martial arts as well. Is yoga bad? Well, the stretching and the motions, no. The meditation, yes. Are various martial arts bad? The exercise, defense instruction, the motions, no. The meditation, the worshiping of whatever, yes. And you may have a different opinion on this. You may say that yoga and martial arts are just bad, just all around, just stay away from them. That's your right to say that. I personally won't go that far. But if you're telling me that you're meditating on God when you're doing the meditation parts, mm, not if you're doing what they tell you to do. So be very careful. I think early on in this podcast somewhere, I did a segment on Christian meditation. And no, just stay away from that. It's a dangerous, slippery slope you're playing with. Now, the rest really aren't worth mentioning, and neither are food and drink, but I gotta hit these food and drink things really quick anyway, because gross. <clears throat> the three they chose to give us as examples, with no commentary given are as follows. Botarga, quote, the roe sack of a fish, especially the gray mullet, prepared by salting, pressing, and drying, and served in various ways, including as a grated garnish on its own with seasoning or with vegetables. Soju, 
quote, a colorless, clear, distilled alcoholic beverage from Korea, often made from a mixture of rice and other starches, such as sweet potatoes, wheat, barley, tapioca, etc. The word soju comes from the Korean, from a combination of so, to burn, roast, and ju, alcoholic beverage. <clears throat> and nato, Quote, Japanese cooking, a dish of fermented cooked soybeans, often eaten for breakfast over white rice or with toppings such as soy sauce and mustard. <laughs> no comments. Uh, quickly moving on. Economics and finance. We'll only look at one in this short list. Greedflation. Yes, this goes along with inflation or shrinkflation. This is again the big mean evil corporation screwing you, the consumer, not the result of terrible economic and fiscal policies that are rapidly eroding the financial sector and the salaries and the savings of people like you and me. Quote, a rise in prices, rents, or the like that is not due to market pressure or any other factor organic to the economy, but is caused by corporate executives or boards of directors and property owners, etc., solely to increase profits that are already healthy or excessive. Can you hear the venom dripping off the fangs of Dictionary.com right there? Those greedy fat cats, they already make too much money. In fact, they shouldn't make any profit at all. Who do they think they are? That's essentially the idea behind all of the recent union strikes, most notably the UAW, the auto workers, whose Mensa-level genius leader is photographed with his Eat the Rich t-shirt, probably with various gravy stains on it. This is why Barbara Lee, the representative from California, currently in the race to be the next senator, said recently that the minimum wage should be raised to $50 per hour. She believes that corporations think, you know, like McDonald's, for instance, are just greedy and should be paying their workers five to seven times what they're already making. And she seems clueless to the fact that by doing that, as has been proven every time a minimum wage hike is enacted, you actually cut the hours of workers and you cut workers and you raise prices and you basically just kind of literally hurt everyone. But it's greed, right? And as Aerosmith intoned, quote, eat the rich, there's only one thing they're good for. Eat the rich, I take one bite now, come back for more. Eat the rich, I gotta get this off my chest. Eat the rich, I take one bite now, spit out the rest. Aha. Uh -huh. Of course, Steven Tyler has a net worth of somewhere around $150 million, so, uh, so it's, uh, it's a little above mine. I guess I need to go and gobble up his richness. <laughs> Let me go get my rich people eating bib and utensils. Now let's move to climate, weather, and environment. This should be good. I'm just gonna kind of hit a few rapid fire here and then make some general comments after that. You can probably already see coming. Climate breakdown, quote, the collective effects of harmful and potentially irreversible trends in climate, specifically those resulting from unchecked global warming. Global boiling, quote, a non-scientific term used to emphasize the trend toward and severity of extreme heat events, especially in regard to public health. Extreme heat event, quote, a heat event classified as being excessive enough to pose a serious threat to public health. And carbon market, quote, a commodity trading system through which countries and organizations can buy and sell permits to produce a set amount of carbon dioxide emissions and other atmospheric pollutants. <sighs> okay, these terms are created to specifically frighten you into action or compliance. This is why we now have things like superstorms or polar vortices or death 
snow slaughterings or murder death kill rain or I don't know whatever they're coming up with over at the weather channel think tank these days the reality is that weather is weather always has been there's no data that says we're on a straight line trajectory toward catastrophe there is data however that shows we're in a cyclical weather pattern in oscillation from very calm for a period of years to very violent for a period of years, knowing that everything in all of creation has a natural frequency, which is why a singer can break a wine glass. That's what we're in here. Can man or is man affecting the oscillation? I I have no doubt that we are. Have we knocked our planet out of the oscillation? No, no, we, we, we haven't done that. And we don't have that ability, not with Jesus sustaining the earth that he created, with complete sovereignty and full omniscience before he created the first molecule. But the fear porn continues. Just the other day, a story came out that the proposal has been made to add another number to the hurricane rating chart. Currently, it goes to five. They say that because of the increasing intensity of hurricanes, you know, because of global warming or boiling or whatever, we need a six. Be afraid. The reality is that they're talking about storm severity in the middle of the ocean, which almost never makes landfall, even on the little islands. So I don't really care. Add to seven or go to 10 or whatever you want, but be honest with people. In the U.S., we have been in a period of years now with the least landfall hurricanes in modern history. They keep predicting a massive hurricane year, and they're continuously wrong. And that's because their models are built off of global warming and man-caused climate change, and their models are wrong. They're wrong assumptions and wrong data, and they get wrong outputs. That said, I'll predict it now, so mark it down. There will be a period in the future, probably nearish future, where hurricanes will start to be more prevalent on the U.S. coast, and some will be intense. Again, cyclical oscillations. All right, a few more and we'll be done. Social issues are next. Intimate partner violence. Quote, acts of violence or abuse within a romantic relationship. Now, why do I bring this up? Yes, I agree this is real. That It's not funny. I'm not making fun of it. It would be nice if this sort of thing would stop. What I find interesting is that this isn't domestic abuse or spousal abuse or any of the past terms that we've used. This is intimate partner this just displays the state of our world with regard to relationships. I could be in a romantic relationship with someone that I'm not dating, someone I'm not living with, someone I'm not married to. Just an intimate romantic relationship. And if violence occurs, well, I need a way to describe it. The prevalence of romantic relationships outside of the God-ordained or even previously accepted human worldview has made a term like this necessary. How about supervised injection site? No, this isn't the parking lots, the pharmacies, the schools, the warehouses, the back alleys, in your bedroom while you're asleep, sneaking up behind you in the grocery store aisle, syringe-wielding ninjas silently descending from the ceiling as you walk through the doors to your college, COVID so-called vaccine givers that's not a vaccine at all, the lunatic injection sites, that's not what we're talking about. No, no, no. Now, this is a, quote, medically supervised facility at which people can inject illicit drugs they have brought with them, a practice intended to reduce overdoses, disease transmission, and other health problems associated with illicit drug use. Sure, sure, if we just, just help them use their illegal drugs, then things will be better. Or maybe we arrest drug dealers and users and then work to find out what help these people need. Yes, I'm aware that the Just Say No drug program is and will always be a failure. I do realize that we'll never stamp out illegal drugs, although if President Potato would close down the borders, that would probably put a dent in it. Yes, I'm aware of the countries that have simply legalized everything and focused their money on ad campaigns to help people stop taking drugs, and 
their alleged curbing of their drug addiction is what they claim. And yet I still think that this is a fight that we need to fight, just like abortion is a fight that we'll likely never win, but we need to fight it anyway. There are some things that are just wrong and dangerous, and we need to try to stop them. And by giving them a free pass and helping them do their drugs safer, what are we accomplishing here? Now, I'd argue that the end result, when you compile all your data, it's going to show that at best we did nothing. How about two new terms that are very similar, food insecure and energy poverty? Respectively, we have, quote, having or characterized by limited or uncertain access to adequate food, and, quote, a lack of adequate access to safe, affordable sources of electricity or fuel for warmth, light, cooking, etc. Yeah, so a study was done on these so-called food deserts, and no, they, they don't actually exist. The, the criteria used for classifying a food desert was so narrow that literally a huge percentage of the population exists in a food desert. I think that I was on the edge of a food desert, if I remember right, and I live in a neighborhood, in town. Food deserts don't exist. Now, with inflation, thanks to our vegetable-in-chief, and honestly, Trump before him, and Obama before him, and Bush before him, and Clinton before him, and how far back you want to go with this, you know, with the just terrible fiscal policies, there is poverty, and there is inflation, and the money to purchase the food is harder to come by, but we have a massive number of people on government-run food stamps, which is also the best way to run that kind of program. No grift or waste in that system, to be sure. As for energy poverty, again, I'd have to say, no, this, this really isn't a thing, unless... They're talking about how they're shutting down nuclear and coal, as well as other fossil fuel power plants, and trying to set up, you know, windmills and, and solar panels to take their place, which at this point in our technological history is sheer stupidity. So if this is government-mandated energy poverty, uh, yeah, that's probably becoming more of a thing every week, and it's probably coming to all of us soon. Moving to a few of their closing words, fakeness. Uh, this is just someone being fake. Kennel cough. Again, this has been around and called this for like 50 years or more. I mean, come on, people. And possibly one of my favorites, the one we'll end on, boobney. Uh, quote, pimples or a rash in the area of the breasts or on the upper back caused by a bra that chafes, is not clean, or is made of material that is allergic or not breathable. And it has other acne-related word blends, backne, that's acne on the back, and maskne, which is face mask-induced acne because our overlord said we should use a mask, despite every last piece of evidence anywhere and everywhere proving that masks can't stop a virus. Not the least bit. So there you have it. The words Dictionary.com felt were important for us to know out of the many words they've added and definitions they've revised, which we don't know. And the pattern is clear, at least to me. Evolution is still being pushed. The green agenda is of the utmost importance. And we need to get those fat, cat, greedy, rich folks. <sighs> I don't really have anything further to add, which you're probably all sighing in relief right now, except this. Words matter. Context of words matters even more. We need to not only understand what the language is, but what it was. New words being added to the dictionary shows us the direction of societal thought. Words getting their definitions revised shows us the agenda of those in positions of power. Get yourself some old dictionaries, some old reference materials. Don't rely on web-based tools entirely. There is an active process of cleaning the internet, you know, deleting stuff. Now, who's doing it? Why? And what are they removing? I don't know. But be aware that we won't always be able to find what we can find today. And if all of this is being done by bad actors, people with very specific goals in mind, it can be used to systematically manipulate us. Have a physical copy of the Bible. 
have physical reference materials, at least some. I've got a dictionary from 2001 and a thesaurus from 1987 on my shelf. And opening them to look at the dates is the first time they've been opened in probably 20 years or more. But I'm not getting rid of them. Revising definitions, redefining words will subtly, over time, make literary classics unreadable. It'll make official documents such as the Constitution not read the same. And your Bible also will not read the same. Be aware. Be able to read whatever it is in the context of the time that it was written, just as the fear that the elimination of teaching cursive will eventually ensure people won't be able to read founding documents. The manipulation of words and definitions will ensure that those same works won't be able to be understood correctly. And on that happy note, I guess I'll guess I'll go ahead and close. I need to head down to my local supervised injection site to stock up on some energy poverty so I can squish down deep and cozy in my sound bath and give that boobney a much-needed and overdue Bechtel test. That's, That's about right. Do you know what you believe? Do you really? Do you know why you believe it? What I've found, starting with myself, is that the answer for a lot of Christendom is, um, sort of... I've mentioned aspects of my journey as a Christian before, but let me tell you where I've come from. Maybe you can identify. So billions of years ago, that didn't exist. Jumping forward in in time just a little bit to the year of our Lord, 1975, and O'Domini, of course, I was born. I was born at a very young age, and embarrassingly, for just everyone involved, completely nude. That was quickly remedied. I don't remember a time when I wasn't attending church. Or to be more specific, I don't remember a time I wasn't attending a Baptist church. At five years old, I don't remember the conversation, but I do remember talking to my mom. She went her way, I crawled under the dining room table, as I was wont to do, and I prayed to ask Jesus into my heart. I emerged from my little fort of chairs and told my mom what I had done. Of course, happiness ensued. Now, growing up, I attended Sunday morning church. I attended Sunday school. I attended Awana because, look, approved workmen are not ashamed. And we study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. It's just embroiled in there. It's just engraved on your head. Anyway... At the age of, I don't really remember anymore, 15-ish, maybe? I finally summoned up the courage to be baptized. It wasn't that I had a thing against being baptized. I'm just really a massive introvert, and getting up in front of people was and still is terrifying. I mean, I can do it, and I do do it, and I just said do-do. But inside, and depending on the situation, sometimes outside, I'm a little bit like Jello. Now, I remember that I was uh, one of, I think, three or four other people to get baptized. All of them, of course, were younger than me. And it was decided that I should go last. This was not an age thing. This was because at the time, I had a full head of thick, uncooperative hair. So in keeping with the times, I did my part to support L.A. looks or L.A. gel or it was L.A. something by buying just drums of their hair gel. That hair... Uh, it wasn't going anywhere when I got done with it. So I went last so as to not leave an oil slick for other people to have to walk through. People laugh now, and rightly so, but I wasn't out of step with the times. I mean, the girls all had various attempts at the big poof on the front of their heads, and the guys had various amounts of gel keeping hair where they wanted it, either up or down, sometimes both. Of course, now, after slathering all that toxic goo through my hair, I'm bald, Sure, that wasn't the cause of it, though. 
Anyway, I grew up in youth group. Eventually, I headed to college. I didn't attend church very much while I was in college. It wasn't that I was backsliding. It was more of the introverted thing, more than anything, to be honest. I didn't really have someone to go with. And I don't remember a Baptist church being there. Now, for some of you, you just about spit out your Mountain Dew, as I'm assuming that's what everyone is drinking. How could there not be a Baptist church there? Well, I went to a college in a small town in southern Wisconsin. Baptist isn't the predominant denomination. It's more Catholic and Lutheran and Methodist. In fact, I went and looked up on Google Maps for my old college town just now, looked up Baptists. There's one, and it's it's very small, and it's outside the outer edge of town. Other than that, nothing else labeled Baptist on the map even today. I did make friends with a guy who was also Baptist in the same kind of predicament as me. We went to a local Methodist church a handful of times together, but never really felt connected to it. So for most of my college career, I really didn't attend church. I mean, how sad is that looking back on it? And I don't even think there was any sort of a campus ministry at the college. In fact, I just, again, just did a little searching here. And I'm not entirely sure there's anything there still today. It looks like they had something that the Lutheran Church put on, but that appears to have started well after I graduated and appears to be defunct now. There's an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship that's listed in the college list of clubs, but on their site they have no upcoming events, no officers, no documents. I'm not sure that they're actually active right now. So I was just kind of there. I knew what I believed as much as I knew, and I could argue what I knew, and I did get into some theological discussions with friends, but I was just kind of stagnant at that point. Now, coming out of college, moving out of state for my first career job, I tried going to a church that a good friend that I worked with attended. It was the largest Baptist church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and it was really big. It was too big. I was a couple thousand people, multiple services. I don't know. I was just kind of lost in there. Now, I went to some of these special things that they did with my friend, but I I couldn't stay at that church and be an attender. It just did not fit. Eventually, I think after I was married, I don't remember exactly when, we found another Baptist church to attend, closer to home, smaller. It was fine, kind of what I was used to. Moving to West Virginia, we tried a few places, but eventually we were invited to a church about 20 minutes from the house, went to a couple's movie night thing, and everyone was very nice and very welcoming. We started attending. Over the next probably 14 or 15 years, that's the church that we attended, and then after a divorce, I and the kid attended. I was a leader in the puppet ministry. I took on the task of teaching the elementary Sunday school class because, frankly, I wanted my kid, who was a toddler at that point, to go to Sunday school. So I figured if I had to go and teach, well, she could just come with me. So I was teaching elementary age Sunday school. I was the leader of the children's department eventually, ran the media aspects of the church, eventually started teaching a Sunday night theology course and many other things. This was, again, a Baptist church, and it was kind of what I think most people would expect in a Baptist church. One thing that drove me nuts going back to teaching Sunday school was the pre-packaged, pre-made Sunday school curriculum for kids. It was drivel, to be honest. It was the same 52 lessons every year, packaged slightly differently, if you were lucky, year after year, grade after grade, that the kids were just bored to tears with. I started by using that. Then I started to actually fluff it out, you know, by actually 
telling the story from the Bible rather than just using their summary. Then I started bringing in props and pictures and started using the computer to show pictures and videos. And then after two years, I told our Sunday school superintendent to save the money on the prepackaged stuff. I wasn't going to use it anymore. So I started teaching them with what I was developing. I taught them on creation, and they each made their own magical box of mystery and wonder. That's what it came to be called. Basically, the seven days of creation in a box. I taught them about Noah's Ark, and using the smallest model-trained people and animals I could find, we all made a Noah's Ark out of wood, as described in the Bible, a big box with three levels, window all the way around the top, and I made it so it was kind of a cutout, kind of a cutaway thing, so they could see how huge it was compared to the people. We learned about other religions. They filled out a little more each Sunday on a huge poster board chart, learning what different religions of the world believed. We compared it to Christianity, and we showed how different Christianity is compared to man's religions. I was digging and learning in the process of digging to help them learn. Well, about six years ago, I attended the World Religions and Cults Conference at the Creation Museum. That was absolutely fascinating. And one man, Todd Friel, speaking at the end of the conference, actually filling in for someone that couldn't make it, he was speaking on postmodernism, and it just blew up my entire world. Finally, someone made sense of what I was seeing all around me. I discovered that he had an organization called Wretched. It included Wretched TV and Wretched Radio, which I started listening to on podcasts. From him, I was introduced to people like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, organizations like Got Questions, What, W-W-U-T-T, when we understand the text, uh, people like Alistair Begg, Mike Fabares, and so on. As fate, right, fate, would have it, I had been getting more and more into podcasts over the previous few years, and I was in the process of trying to find some good people to listen to. I tried Stephen Furtick, but in about 15 minutes, he made me want to rip my own ears off. T.D. Jakes was pretty much the same, just I don't know how anybody listens to these guys. Charles Stanley was, he was fine, not what I was looking for. His son is a nightmare. I could tell that there was something wrong with Andy from the very start. So I was looking. I was trying to find something. And what I'd call the mainstream popular guys, they all sucked. But these new people I found, aha, uh-huh, they weren't into the antics. They weren't into showmanship. They were preaching. Get this out of the Bible, actually. One problem, some of them were very unapologetically Calvinist in nature. Now, I didn't know anything about Calvinism or Arminianism at that point. I just knew that God didn't make robots because that's what I was always told to think as pastors skipped as fast as they possibly could past Ephesians 1 and 2 and Romans 8 and 9. But I wanted to understand the Bible as written. I'm not generally a very open-minded person, probably hard to tell. I'm pretty stubborn, pretty set in my ways. But I wanted to make sure that I was understanding the Bible for what it said, And that's what led me on my journey to becoming what I guess I'd call a mostly Reformed Baptist, or as it's called, Calvinist, and then I think you have to spit after saying that. So not quite a year ago, after probably a few years of pondering, contemplating, considering, praying, thinking, I decided to leave the church of 14 years or so and and start attending the, the church I'm currently at, which is a Reformed Baptist church. And I gotta be honest, it's amazing. The music is rich and theological. The chorus of voices includes the deeper tones of men in the congregation actually joining in the singing. 
The scripture reading is from solid Bible translations. It's heartfelt, and it's not just a verse or two, you know, this is, this is passages from the Old and the New Testament, not even for the upcoming message. This is just for the edification of the body. And the messages are wonderful, deep, meaningful, fearlessly charging where other pastors won't tread, and always gospel-centric because the whole of the book points to Jesus. Now, through those six years I just mentioned, and really for a number of years prior to that, I was reading, or at least I was trying to do a lot of reading. After attending that conference, I started to dig into many theological books, some by these new people I discovered, some by other authors associated in some way with these people. My knowledge was increasing. My desire was increasing. My confusion as to why hadn't I heard this stuff before was increasing. In fact, when I was teaching the Sunday night theology course, it really concerned me that the people in that class, most of whom were seniors, most of whom had been in the church for 40 plus years, if not their entire lives, had never heard most of what was being taught from this systematic theology course. This was to the point that I actually got in a small debate with someone who was in a top leadership position about if the biblical account of creation was fact or opinion. And the pastor, and I'm not trying to down him in any way, but the pastor, in attempting to smooth it out at that time, basically said that we probably shouldn't be dogmatic about issues like these, to which I let him know that I was absolutely going to be dogmatic because I'm right. Look, I didn't say that I always handled myself in the best way, okay? Now, I did go and apologize to that individual later. I did speak to my pastor about the entire issue, and I ended up teaching a jet tour, a four-week evolution versus creation class, and again, the attendees had no idea of the overwhelming evidence for biblical creation and the sheer fantasy that goes into the theory of evolution. So, to bring this epic way longer than I intended tome of my life to a close, I don't think that anyone I sat under, save for one pastor who I was instrumental in getting him to finally leave as he should have never been a pastor. And yes, I have legitimate grounds to say that, although this isn't the place to speak of it. But other than that one, I don't think any of the other pastors were charlatans or nefarious in it for their own personal gain. I think they were preaching how they were taught, how they thought they should preach, how they were brought up, how they were educated. But again, looking back at it, it feels shallow now. It feels simplistic. It feels like what I was being taught was more milky in nature rather than meaty. The same kinds of messages cycle around and around, stopping, of course, for every holiday to give a specifically designed message for that specific holiday, whether that was a Christian holiday, a federal holiday, or a Hallmark holiday. The messages all had to fit in a sermon series about a topic. The Bible was read and used, but not what I would call exegeted, just really kind of, you know, dug into a little bit and taught shallow. All the services ended with a song and an altar call, which I'm now convinced shouldn't really be part of services anymore, based on the history of why it started. And even if the message had nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the gospel, little to do with the Bible, the plea to come to Jesus was always made at the end because that's what you do. That's standard operating procedure. Despite the fact that someone who just walked in off the street, having never heard any of this message before, would have no idea who Jesus is, where he is, or why they needed to come and meet this guy at the end of the service. Now, all that summed up. I knew what I believed, but I didn't know what I believed. 
and I knew why I believed it, but I really had no clue why I believed it. And although my understanding of salvation and God's election to salvation has changed, at the time, I had to start wondering if I was really saved or not. Now, I know I am today, and I can say that at five years old, I was saved because God had already foreordained that to be true. But from a salvation standpoint, I had no idea at five years old what carrying my cross meant. I had no idea what denying myself and following Christ meant. I had a very basic concept of repentance and faith, obviously. I mean, I was five. But because God is sovereign, I was saved, and I'm currently saved, and I will be saved at either my death or the second coming, whichever comes first. But I had concerns that I didn't know what I thought I did. I didn't really know why I believed it. I wasn't really living in a self-denying, cross-bearing, repentant way. And what did that mean for my feelings of security and salvation? And maybe you find yourself in the same position, or maybe you're wondering at this point, if you're in the same position and you just don't know it yet. Well, the early church fathers already thought of that. Going all the way back to the first century, or so it's widely agreed, teachers in the church have written and assembled catechisms. The word catechism comes from the Greek and basically means to teach orally. Catechisms are basically summaries of beliefs used to teach children or converts the basics, you know, the ins and outs, the, the what you believe and why of religion. You can have a catechism for just about anything, but they're probably most widely known as a Christian teaching tool. Now, the church had catechisms, and then when that split into the Catholic and Protestant religions, both of them developed catechisms. They're usually created in a question-answer form, mostly simple enough for a child to grasp the concept, but deep enough that the adult will gain a deeper understanding of their faith. Protestants generally would have heard the terms Westminster Shorter Catechism, or maybe just the Westminster Catechism. Maybe you've heard of the Heidelberg Catechism. There's a number of others. Many of them are Roman Catholic, which probably have some things correct and a number of the additions that Catholics have put in their belief system that are not correct. I think that mostly Reformed churches teach catechisms today. I'm not really sure, though, and I really don't know how many of those actually teach them. But they're wonderful teaching tools. And that's what I'd like to cover on, I guess, week four of this cycle of add-on type segments. I want to cover the Heidelberg Catechism for a few reasons. One, it's a very good catechism, that's first. And then we're going through it bit by bit prior to participating in communion every week at church. So, you know, why not use that one? The questions and answers are structured in a way that they walk you through a progression of your faith. Now, the Heidelberg has been split into 52 days, so basically it's a series of questions and answers for each Sunday for a year. Now, there are actually a total of 129 questions in the Heidelberg, and each answer has supporting scripture for why that is the answer to the question. I figure that every four weeks, we'll try to cover probably... Two to six questions? I don't know. Some of them are very short, very simple, with only a scripture or two to actually reference. Some questions are longer. Some have more supporting scripture that go with it. So it'll be more based on time rather than number of questions. Now, I'll warn you up front. The Heidelberg is generally considered to be a Reformed or Calvinist, don't forget to spit, confession. So there will be some questions that will specifically reference that belief. If you're not of the Reformed persuasion, that's okay. Whether you're Calvinist or pagan, sorry, Arminian, <clears throat> slip of the tongue there, you'll still benefit from this catechism as a whole. And I'd implore you, listen with an open mind and an open Bible. 
Make it your goal, like I've made it mine, to understand the Bible as correctly as possible, not based on emotion, not based on what you've always been taught, not based on snarky quips about the other view like I just did. Just read the Bible and strive to understand it for what it says. We're not meant to like everything we read in the Bible. Or more accurately, the Bible was not written as a feel-good, pat-on-the-emotional-bottom, good-night storybook. It's a book of truth. And when you read it honestly, there are a lot of things in there that do not feel good. But if they're in there, we need to figure out what to do with them. So starting, I guess, in another four weeks, when this comes back in cycle, we'll jump into a little history of the Heidelberg, and then we'll just kind of see how much time we have left for questions. So I want to end with this. On the gospelcoalition.org, which is a site I'd cautiously recommend, as they have a lot of good stuff and some not so good. So if you go there, just be careful. Well, they have an article entitled, Nine Things You Should Know About Catechisms. I'm going to jump through these nine very quickly. Number nine is what I'm saying. I'm going to add in here just because it was in there. You'll understand here in a second. Number one, the catechist engages in the catechesis when using the catechism to catechize the catechum. Okay, that one was just for fun, and they know it. All right, this refers to the document, the process, the asker, and the answerer. It was just kind of a fun sentence to say, right? Number two, the terms related to catechesis are derived from the Bible. This is important. That's why I'm going to go through the reference passages for the answers. These are all biblical in nature, not someone's feelings on the subject. And incidentally, one thing I like about the Calvinist, spit, theology, is that it's heavily scripture-based. If you'd like to do some homework, look up any debate between an Arminian and a Calvinist. You'll find that the argument of the Calvinist side uses a lot of scripture with very little addition, very little personal feeling, very little emotional anything, etc. You'll find that the Arminian uses a little bit of scripture, a lot of inference and assumptions, and a lot of emotion. That realization on my part was eye-opening. Number three, almost all catechisms include the same four main elements. Now, those elements are the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and teachings on the sacraments. Number four, the Protestant reformers recovered catechesis at least according to them. Now, this is referring to the catechisms of the Roman Catholic Church and knowing what they believe. I would agree that this point is probably correct. They, they probably did recover them. Number five, catechisms and the printing press were two of the most influential tools of the Reformation. Now, if you recall, at the time of the Reformation, people didn't own Bibles. There was no mass printing, and even if there was, the Bibles were all written in Latin which the common man did not speak. Only the clergy read or spoke that. And what this meant is that the people couldn't read the Bible. They didn't understand most of what was said during the Mass, and they only knew what they were told. This is why Luther, who could read Latin, started reading the actual Bible, compared it to what was being told to the people, and had a panic attack about how many things were being told to them incorrectly. The Reformation really caught hold because right around that time, Luther and some others started to translate Bibles into the native tongue, and with the development of the printing press, they could start to get the Bibles out to the common man faster than ever before. Number six, Martin Luther popularized the question-and-answer format. This was to try to ensure people understood what they were actually learning. 
Number seven, the Westminster Confession of Faith inspired most of the important catechisms of Reformed Christianity. Now, we may touch on this later, not right now, but the Westminster Confession and catechisms are instrumental to the Protestant faith, I would argue, not just the Reformed flavor of the Protestant faith. Number eight, just about every church tradition has created its own catechism, and this is why you do this with an open Bible. You need to look at their textual proof for their claim. Let the Bible interpret the Bible and ensure that what they're claiming is biblically accurate. And number nine, TGC, that's the Gospel Coalition, helped create a modern era catechism. Okay, well, they apparently put one out with the help of Tim Keller and some other people. Not a big fan of Tim Keller. Rest his soul. He died just recently. I only put this in there, this this point number nine, because I'm using their article. All right? I don't see any reason to go to their catechism. It might be fine. I don't know. I'm not interested in pursuing their version. Okay. Well, as I've said in the other add-on segments, the future segments won't be quite this long. I just had some intro and background work that I wanted to do to set up what I want to do. So, until we meet again, go forth and strive to know what you believe and why. And with that, sadly, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. I feel we've bonded as we've laughed and cried and twisted our faces in incredulity. If you've enjoyed or found value in what you've heard, go on and do all the podcast things. And don't forget to check the show notes for links and contact info. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.